Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Midtown Atlanta, it's time for Top Docs Radio, brought to you by Medical Association of Georgia. With over 7,800 physician members, MAG is pleased to advocate on behalf of Georgia's patients and physicians. Visit mag.org and on Twitter at mag1849. Join the conversation on Twitter at Top Docs on BRX. Good afternoon, everyone. It is C.W. Hall, your host here on the Top Docs Radio Show. Been going now for about two and a half years. Can't believe we've been on the air this long. In our partnership with Medical Association of Georgia, today is one of those days. We've got the folks from Medical Association of Georgia in studio with us today, and we're going to be talking about health literacy and why that is important. And our guest today is Dr. Ruth Parker. She is a professor of medicine and pediatrics and public health at Emory University School of Medicine. Thanks for driving over and joining me in the studio. Great to be here. Thanks. I've enjoyed talking with you before we've gone on the air today. Talk a little bit about why'd you go into medicine? Why pediatrics? And then why'd you decide to add population health on top of that? Oh, great question. Well, I grew up in Noonan, Georgia, so I'm a Georgia resident, by na- uh, a native Georgian. And I grew up in a small town and, gosh, at a young age, actually went to work in, I think I probably was 14, went to work in a pediatrician's office, a couple of brothers who were private practitioner pediatricians in Noonan. One of them became the mayor. <laughs> and I uh, had a firsthand view of what it really meant to be a member of a community, very connected to them. Um, I saw the impact that their work had on patients and families, and I fell in love with the idea of being a part of a caring profession. So I decided at a pretty young age that I wanted to become a physician. It was interesting. My great-grandfather had graduated from medical school a hundred years to the day before I did, and he was the only physician between Atlanta and Macon at the time. So I was the first person in my family wow. to go into medicine after that. But um, I, I fell in love with the idea of being a part of a caring profession and, and being very connected to health and to its importance in the lives of individuals and their families. And for 20-some years, you've been putting a lot of focus on population health. Well, I, you know, it's, that's, a, that's a newer term. There's no question but that that's a concept that I've been interested in for a long time. I think, you know, maybe you would agree with me. Much of the practice of medicine is very much centered on the individual that sits in front of us. It's very much a one-on-one practice, and a lot of the training that most of us do to become physicians is very focused on how do we take care of this person with their illness and how it manifests itself within them. And it was much further along. I had done, um, I was in, I was a medical student at Chapel Hill, and then I had done residencies in internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Rochester. And it was not until I was a fellow a few years later in general medicine at, at University of Pennsylvania that I got very interested in big health problems, which are sort of the problems of a population or big numbers, not just one-on-one, but mm-hmm. but what really drives the health of groups of people. We now look at that as population Cultural health. elements and socioeconomic things that might make it more likely that I'm probably not going to eat the foods I should, for example. Exactly. Or maybe I'm going to smoke. Right. And, and though we put so much emphasis on health care and what we do within medicine, and certainly that is incredibly fundamental and important. There's so many factors beyond that 
that influence what health really is and how it's manifested in people, in communities, within a family. And I got very interested in that. And that's really what led me eventually to take a close look at what is now called one of these social determinants of health. Didn't have that name when I started, but that's what it's got now. When we talk about health literacy, and I know coming from healthcare myself, I worked in uh, cardiovascular intensive care for a number of years. and, And I was surprised after taking care of, I don't know how many open heart patients, after a while, they they usually do very well, you know. They they're sick patients for sure, but they do very well. And I I found myself sometimes reminding myself I'd look around and 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 after the surgery, the family comes in and they're doe-eyed, you know, this overload. There's monitors, there's sounds, there's hoses and wires. Had to make myself remember that these folks don't see this every day. They don't hear this every day, and and therefore it is anything but ordinary for them. And and when we're talking about healthcare literacy, it's dealing with what physicians and other healthcare providers are doing to provide the patients with information that understandable and that they can use. It's it's one of those things. It it seems like the doing it day after day after day, you kind of take for granted, I think, that this person I'm talking to is surely going to understand what I'm saying. But it would seem that being able to make sure that this person I'm talking to does understand what I'm saying. And not only that, I'm presenting it in a way that they're actually going to act on it. I mean, it would seem that health literacy is fairly important, but yet at the same time, it's got a great opportunity for improvement because I'm sure it's on the low side. Well, absolutely. And I think what I became so aware of was I I, I work at Grady in public hospital setting, and it it was it was over 20 years ago, I was actually doing something completely unrelated. Health literacy wasn't a term that was thrown around and used at that time. I was doing a survey with patients in our very busy waiting room that had to do with waiting time. I was shocked at how long, I mean, we had patients who would wait hours to be seen. And I was trying to better understand that. I had a team with me, no money. So I was doing it myself with some medical students and and others. And We had a short survey that we gave to patients, and what happened was the survey was being flipped back to us in lightning speed. And I went up to a hospital administrator that was over the emergency room there, and I said, can our patients read? And he said, well, most of them can. And I knew enough to ask him what most meant. And I said, what do you mean by most? And he said, I don't know, two-thirds. And I said, wait a minute. Are you telling me that a third of the patients in this waiting room, can't read and understand that survey, what the heck are they doing with their pill bottles and their instructions for an upper GI series or a bare minimum or the preparation for this, their pre-op instructions or self-care management for chronic disease, much less something more complicated like CT surgery that you mentioned. You know, what, what are they doing? The field wasn't established. And I went forward and built a team, worked with others to really figure out yeah, you know, it's interesting. He was right. At least of our third, at least a third of the patient population did struggle with things that we took for granted. And it's very easy as you move forward in medical training and practice to fall into the routine of a language, a context that becomes incredibly familiar to those that, those of us who live within yes. it. And most people are not patients every day. I mean, nobody wants to be a patient. They become patients reluctantly usually, 
but it's new content. It's a new context. And literacy itself is not so much can you read, it's really can you function. Yes. You know, very much related to the content and the context. So for patients, it's overwhelming. I mean, it's incredibly hard to be a patient because we have so much that's going on and most people don't live within that every day. So the lens of health literacy is one that really tries to take what we do in health and healthcare, how we communicate it, how clear we are, how understandable we are, and how well do we align that with what we know about our patients, their skills and abilities to understand it, to use it, to act on it. And can we ourselves become people who can impart, communicate, if you will, content, processes, information in a way that does make it something that you can find, use, navigate, that's helpful, that's friendly. But I think from the patient perspective, it's overwhelming and it's incredibly easy to, to mess up. And that's where so many patients live day to day. We're talking with Dr. Ruth Parker. She's a professor of medicine and pediatrics and public health at Emory University School of Medicine. And we're learning about health literacy, why it's important, the extent of the issue. Uh, Talking about the waiting room that you mentioned, uh, the Institute of Medicine reported uh, that nearly half the adult population lacks literacy, literacy skills to understand and use health information. So it may have been worse than just the anecdotal guess. One study found that just 12% of U.S. adults have health literacy skills they need to manage the demands of our complex healthcare system. Uh, it's a it's a obviously yeah. a, a wow. big a big issue. And and so as you look over the the intervening years since the time you were doing that survey, I mean, how has it changed? How how, how are we doing better or worse? So, well, interestingly, I would say first of all. Um, Work to sort of say this is an issue has progressed to the fact that now people realize, indeed, I mean, it's hard to believe, but most people in our country do not have the skills to access, navigate, and use the health and healthcare information that they need for everyday health decisions. That's that's kind of overwhelming to think about. The number that you cited of 12%, let me tell you where that comes from. That's the best national survey. It's a household survey, very well conducted, of thousands of people. 12% of the entire sample could take a chart that shows an employee contribution from a health plan and how much it would pay for a service. Now, most of us would say you need to be able to see a chart like that and use it in order to make decisions about your health and healthcare in the United States. We're a market-driven economy. Health is big business. Healthcare is big business, I would say, not health, but healthcare is big business. So the best survey we have available tells us that 12% of the United States population, adult population, can do that with accuracy. We're a long... Like one in seven, something like it, that? It's hard to believe. One in eight? Right. So... When it comes to being able to have those people use that information, you're, and I think it's interesting because the chart you're talking about is just being able to look and see, what is this going to pay for my care? If I need to get 
XYZ study or XYZ procedure and I want to look into my benefits and understand more about what, what's this going to mean for me? Because today, as we all know, based on the, on the news and, and just our neighbors talking to us about their own personal experience, obviously the individual has far more equity in the equation. They've got to contribute more right. in most cases mm-hmm. financially. So that piece of information, being able to understand that is you know, obviously going to be even more important today than it was a few years ago. Well, well, with the individual mandate that everyone in the United States should have insurance, certainly knowing how to use it is fundamental to that. You don't just need to have it. You need to know how to use it. So that's a task, for example, that you need in order to function successfully in the healthcare setting in America. So that's one good example What really shifted? You asked me about shifts in the field, and I would say we spent about a decade, people around the country, looking at how commonly people, populations struggle with everyday health care and health tasks, taking care of your diabetes, taking care of your heart failure, your asthma. You know, what are the skills and abilities? What are those associated with? We found out that um, not only are, are there a lot of people that struggle with health literacy skills, but that was associated with more difficulty managing chronic illness. It was associated with more hospitalizations, more cost based on increased use of service. We, we figured out it was higher mortality among people with cardiovascular disease, those with ho- low health literacy struggled and there were associations that you could find with cost, with quality, with disparities. These are all big issues in the United States as we look at health and health care. So about a decade ago, maybe even a little longer, the emphasis shifted to what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about this? Right. And so the field made a pretty profound shift on what do we do? And very interestingly, the lens has shifted not so much from the public and what an individual or a group of people can or cannot do, but rather to what are we as practitioners, right. as people involved in health and in healthcare on all levels, how good are we at making what it is you need to know and do something you can understand? something you can use, something you can access, something you can navigate. A good example of that, I think, I, I've spent a lot of time with a, with a large team looking at medication labels. So medication labels and what's on a, on a pill bottle and all the materials that support any medication you take are really a good example of the intersection of safety and health literacy. So so how does that work? Well, let me, let me give you an example. So there are a lot of pill bottles out there that have a very common label on them. Take one pill twice a day. Well, you and I could probably take <laughs> 10 people in front of us and say, what is it? Can you read it? Most of them can read those words. Right. That's a pretty simple instruction label. What does it mean? Well, we might get with 10 people, eight or nine different answers. Yeah, if I take it at eight and then I take it again at 8.30, that's twice, right? Could be. And I have even <laughs> used that in medical school classes where I had people in the class, you know, and this is before they've had pharmacology. It says, well, you can take it to breakfast and lunch. I mean, twice. So it's interesting. So now, rather than saying this many people looked at this and don't know what it means, we say, why would they know what it means? And who are we that allow pill bottles with labels to go onto the popular market and end up in the hands of our patients. And what is in place that can prevent that? 
So, so to intervene and make health and healthcare health literate is really the focus. Mm-hmm. So what is it we as practitioners one-on-one with patients in our offices or with our staff um, that can involve all kinds of care providers from nursing to people at the front desk to social support to subspecialists to all kinds of people that are part of the team? How are we clarifying the most important information and task and making sure that our patients know them and understand them? And that's a big order. So the focus really shifted from looking at the skills and abilities of patients to saying, what are we as providers, systems of care doing to make what it is you need for health and healthcare on all levels something that's doable? So it shifted from the patient and whether or not they're health literate to those of us who provide and whether or not we're health literate. How good am I at being able to communicate in a short amount of time that I have with a patient what it is they need to know and do for their diabetes, for their hypertension, for their newly diagnosed whatever it is? It means that I, as a physician, as a practitioner, I need to know it myself. I need to be able to communicate it in a way that they understand it that it meets their needs, that we both end up on the same page about what the content actually is, that I say it in a way that encourages questions so that I know what, what my patients' questions are. So that's a, that's, a, that's a very big shift from where we started. But I think as we do that, we realize how complex our systems of care really are and how many layers there are to it. How do you accomplish changing, perhaps, how you are describing how to take this medication or the importance of actually getting signed up for and, and, and engaging in cardiac rehabilitation, for example, which from what I understand, only 35% of the people that have a CV event end up going through cardiovascular rehab that, that need it. Uh, how do you, you know, thinking about, and as a pediatrician, I know you, you'll be one of those folks that, that understands the, the whole workflow issue, having a, I don't know what kind of caseloads you would see during the course of the day, but it was probably a few patients. And workflow in the course of the day is part of the, part of the, the, the challenge that you're dealing with in terms of having a lot of time to be able to convey a message. So how do I, how do I work within that constraint of time and, and, and make my message more have more punch, have yeah. more traction with the recipient. Well, what's nice is there, there are a lot of professional organizations that have gotten, gotten very engaged in health literacy, from the American uh, Medical Association, the American Academy of Peds, the American College of Physicians, many uh, American Academy of Family Practitioners, the National PAs, nursing. Professional associations have really tried to look within their groups of practitioners um, and begin to say, how do we build teams within our entire office structure, within our care settings? And also, what kind of skills do we as individual practitioners need for ourselves that can make us better able to, um, number one, accept the numbers for what they are and realize how commonly our patients do struggle Number two, um, accept the responsibility ourselves as practitioners to do something about it. 
You know, the real experts in what patients understand are patients. And they're, they're individuals, you know, and their needs are different. And their ability to take in and understand and process and act on varies. And it's really incumbent upon us as the practitioners to know what our patients know and to meet them where they are, know what their questions are, and really listen to their understanding. There is a technique of teach back so that one-on-one, if I'm with with you as a patient and we've gone over something related to your diabetes care, um, we then can go back and say, you know, CW, sometimes I talk really fast and I know there's a lot of new information and I don't always make it as clear as I need to. And so I need to hear what what you understand so that I can see whether or not I've done a good job explaining to you. What is it you need to know and do? Can you tell me what it is you're going to do when you get home about your diabetes that we discussed today? What are your main goals? You know, that that patient engagement and activation is so fundamental to behavior change and to what people end up doing. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that our patients, we know it matters to them that we care. And certainly listening and making it clear that we want to know their questions and we want them to understand is really fundamental to sort of that relationship we're we're trying to build anyway. It's really tough. Time is money. And patient education is not something that's highly reimbursed. And especially in a technologic age, it's so easy to assume they'll get it somewhere. It exists. But taking the time to make sure we know what sources they are, are they evidence-based? Are they the best that that you could be doing for whatever condition you have? Or is it a marketing tool, you know, to try to get you to be more inclined to to do something that may not may, may not be aligned with the best evidence that's out there? So how do we as practitioners and and how do we partner with those that are around us to try to make sure that patients are getting what it is they need, that they can understand it, that they can act on it, and that we know what they know? so that we can tailor our messages and our content to their needs. You know, in the United States, it's really embarrassing to not know. People are really ashamed. Yeah, Yeah, I see that. You know, to have to step up and say, I don't understand. I'm overwhelmed. I don't know. I mean, it makes you feel bad. And on top of that, you're in a limited short-term encounter with your providers or with the healthcare system, and time is money. So it's a tough, it's it, you know, it's tough calculus to start with, but I sort of hearken back to I, I think so many people who are a part of health and healthcare are incredibly well-meaning and want to be a part of a, a caring and a helping profession. So I think it's incumbent on all of us to really realize the magnitude of it and to really, you know, use the lens of the patient to help us see what patients' needs really are. And health literacy really starts and ends with patients. It's what a patient understands. It's what they do with it. And, you know, that's what really, it's that behavior that ends up leading to the outcome that we're, you know, mutually interested in. But it's our ability to get inside of that. So I think technology is a great tool for augmenting this. But what we don't want to do is cloud people with so many messages that they can't figure out what in the world to do. And it's tough. It's hard to be a patient. And uh, how did you begin to incorporate what you came to know as you, you described the, the, the waiting room scenario where the busy waiting room was full of people and it was determined that you know, maybe half or a little more 
actually can understand this survey that I'm giving them. As you began to realize that so few people actually were literate in in health and healthcare subjects, how did how did you incorporate that? Were there particular questions you began to ask and make sure that you asked each time so that uh, our physicians that are listening today might maybe they can change their interview uh, a little bit or maybe if it's a patient that's that's listening they might be able to prompt some information around that or think to ask a question i you know get some clarification if they don't understand how did you build that into your your inter- interaction with the patient and the well, family well definitely the the one on one or the individual encounters i think the teach back tool is fundamental tell me tell me what you got out of that yeah so i so i think this idea that um, in an encounter that centers on a clinical question um, those of us who are practicing really do want to ask and put the blame on ourselves, not on patients. Patients are overwhelmed. You know, I always, I always remind trainees, medical students, and residents, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, oh, my gosh, I get to go to the doctor today because <laughs> I have to go. You know, I got to go see the doctor today. That's not a good day. You know, you're probably going to get yelled at. Somebody's going to, you know, say something. you got to lose weight. Yeah, I told you to quit smoking. Exactly. It's just not a happy day, you know. But I think by by even... Thinking about it that way, we start to realize how a patient's viewing it. You know, it's a short encounter. And I think what we do as practitioners to say, to encourage questions, to spend as much time as we can, which is tough. I mean, this is hard, but I think that teach back tool of saying, okay, I think the most important thing from my perspective that we focused on today is what you're going to do about your diabetes related to this medication that we're shifting. Let me make sure if we're on the same page. What's your understanding? Because a lot of times I don't make this, I don't make this as clear as I need to. And I want to make sure we're on the same page here. So wear it as a practitioner. Teach back. Let the patient tell you their understanding. If you're on the same page, great. If you're not, you got to do it again till you're on the same page. It's astounding how commonly any of us on the front line will find that we think we've communicated when we haven't. And so wear it ourselves as practitioners, make it a part of a routine with any encounter, inpatient, outpatient. When we give instructions that relate to self-care, that relate to management, that relate to medication changes, being incredibly clear ourselves, make and, and what I would say that is, that's making sure that we are health literate individually as practitioners. The other thing for all of us is to really look at wherever it is we practice, our office, our hospital system, our network, whatever it is. But what is our system doing to do the same kind of thing? How do we make ourselves providers of health and health care in a way that meets the needs of those who are coming our way? So it cha- that's a different lens than where we started. But I think anyone who's involved in healthcare and in the delivery of care can is aware that it's hard to be a patient. It's incredibly easy to mess up. And, and those are issues that can be addressed through a lens of ensuring on the front end that our management, that our providers, that patient understanding is fundamental to what we do. And that's really where the field has evolved. There's some great tools that are out there. The Agency for Healthcare Quality and Research 
has a toolkit for health literacy that's available online that can be used for individual practitioners. It can also be used for offices to look at all the different places within where you practice to take advantage of making sure that this patient view of un- and their understanding is at the heart of what we're doing. Remembering that patients really are the expert on what they understand. You know, we in medicine are really good at revealing a lot of content. We can talk in long paragraphs. Most of us, and I would put myself in this category, are fascinated by disease pathophysiology. I love it. I can talk about it. But, you know, I'm a lot more interested in islet cell function of the pancreas and the hemoglobin A1C and what it reveals than somebody who's trying to figure out what to eat for lunch that day because they've been told they're overweight, they're pre-diabetic, they've got metabolic syndrome, they've got diabetes type 2, they've heard it's a big problem in America, but what am I supposed to do for lunch today? That's where patients live. But, but as providers of healthcare, the onus is really on us to figure out, well, how do we meet that need and are we doing it? Talk a little more about that toolkit. Is it, a, is it essentially a, a, a script or a list of, of exploratory questions where you can evaluate your, maybe your interview process, different elements around patient education? How, what, talk yes. about that so that maybe, maybe folks want to get a hold yeah, of that. Yeah, and, and it, it actually will go through. It's a, it's a nice, it's, it was um, constructed by someone who's got sort of a great engineering lens. So it takes sort of a nice look at um, the engineered process of getting healthcare and the different people you encounter and how you can look at what happens from calling into the front desk and getting help to navigating forms to the registration process to one-on-one interacting with your provider. Take a list of questions with you. You know, encourage your provider. This is for patients, but encourage your provider to listen to and answer your questions. You know, don't forget to take them because sometimes when you're in there and you don't have much time and you don't feel that well and you're worried about what's going to be said, you forget what your questions are. But, you know, creating an incl- a climate and environment, I know I and many others, um, I, I went through a long time in my life feeling like I was being, you know, sort of a good enough doctor by putting my hand on the door as I was leaving an exam room and saying, um, got any questions? You know, and it's kind of, it reminds me of sort of like, if you say that to a teenager, they never have any questions. You know, and if you ask a teenager any question that can be answered with the word fine, that's going to be the answer. You know, so if you got, of course I don't. You've got your hand on the door. You're, you're, you're trying to, be, you know, mm-hmm. versus what are your questions? I know I went through a lot today. Or, you know, and if that doesn't generate a question, I know I went through a lot. Let's just make sure we're on the same page about one thing. You know, and so it's it's a different style, but I think that is what can begin to get at our patients and their needs, their their understanding about what it is they need to know and do. Um, their improvements, it's happening. You know, people are engaging in it, but in the meantime, there's more and more there are more and more options in medicine and in healthcare. You know, we're we're there's a technologic boom. There's more and more science available. There's so many options, and there's so much out there. And this does call upon us to get back to the fundamentals and make sure we know what, are the, what is the essential need to know to do. What is it every practitioner should make sure their patients know and understand about hypertension? I mean, that's a common chronic illness. Diabetes, being overweight or being obese, um, 
congestive heart failure, asthma. Take common chronic conditions and make sure that whatever the entity is that we as practitioners ourselves know the evidence about what you need to know and do, know the sources to turn to, to, to reference for our patients, see what page they're on. That's why there are many people out there that feel like there's really probably nothing that's more patient-centered, which is a very, you know, it's a commonly used term this day. It's one of the domains of quality. Yeah. Um, but it starts with what people understand and what they do. So it's fundamental. It's foundational. It's not the solution to everything. But if you don't have it, it's hard to go beyond it. I was going to ask, how do I, if I'm a physician or a, another healthcare provider, whatever they may be, determine how am I doing? I'm doing fine, I'm sure is the assumption that right. most of us make uh, with regards to how I interact and educate my patients and, and uh, interview them and ensure that they understand. But I guess that if you will make the simple change that Dr. Parker is talking about with regards to not asking, do you have any questions? Tell me what might be confusing about what I just talked about or phrasing the questions to where it more or less forces at least some sort of answer. Yeah, yeah. Would be one of those ways that would get you to, maybe I'm not going into it as well as I thought because I've started asking the question this way and more it would it would seem that you could probably uncover more of those people if you just make that little yeah, change. Yeah, and and certainly adherence, you know, adherence to complex chronic medications. That would be one good example. So you take, you know, the older you are, the older we are, the more likely we are to have a common chronic illness, the more likely we are to need to be on medications, to have self-care for chronic illnesses. You know, the average American who's over the age of 65 in our country is on at least six different prescription medicines, unfortunately, from probably about eight different prescribers. Yes. Okay, so there's a source of confusion right there, right? And then imagine if you're, you know, over 65, and you might be taking care of a family member who's even older than that. And so all at once, you know, or, or you've got a child with, with a chronic illness, and you're a caretaker, or you're still working, and you've got all these things. So what what are we doing to make that as understandable and navigable as possible. Medication lists, lists that consolidate and make it as easy as possible to remember and to take your medications. There are tools out there increasingly available to do that. So we can, and, and what we know is that the use of those does improve adherence and it improves outcomes that are associated like like improve control of your blood pressure, can improve control of, of your diabetes. That's a lot of the work that's been done in the last decade. The work to link doing these to improve quality is really one of the forefronts. That and also to, to decreasing disparities and improving equity. Those are huge national goals in our country. So whatever we can do to decrease the disparities, improve the equity, those are other intended process and outcome measures that are that are a part of the agenda of health literacy. The other one is really, you know, can we improve value and and make what we do cost less for an individual but improve the quality? I mean, that's that's a huge target, you know, for our nation right now. And there are efforts underway right now looking at that, measuring it, and and trying to come up with I mean, the idea is really to, to, to push forward with system approaches, you know, that can impact an entire system of care using technology that you leverage. But on an individual level, I think practitioners who are on the front line 
have to really own this and make sure it's a part of the agenda of what they do individually and also a part of the larger system where we practice. It's tough. Um, it's you know, doable, but it's tough. It's funny. I, I, I just it, it just kind of laughed just a little bit because it uh, thought just occurred to me basically around this subject. If you think about the conversation that you would have with a patient who is pre-diabetic, mm-hmm. maybe they're obese. Mm-hmm. And they're drifting into pre-diabetes, maybe some early signs of hypertension is on in the male as well. You you are having to interact with a, an individual who doesn't feel bad. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't feel unhealthy. I don't feel sick. I'm not having problems that I'm aware of. And yet I'm being told I need to lose weight. I need to significantly change the diet that I've been in the habit of of partaking in over these past 48 years. Now I've got to change it almost 180 degrees in some cases, uh, making lifestyle changes, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, When I feel fine, I don't have anything. There's no, there's no pain or anything to make me change. That being the, the, the thing that made me laugh is that as practitioners, physicians, nurses, whatever the case may be, we are now confronted with the same issue in the, in a different direction. We're we're saying in this conversation that we as practitioners need to be more effective communicators such that we can address this issue of health literacy. The the patient that I've just talked to about this take this twice a day and that kind of thing, that I need to why why I've been fine, I've been practiced for twenty years, why should I change? Well now we've got MACRA, we got MIPS, we got merit-based incentive payment systems in place now. The, my patient outcomes are going to be reflected in in how I'm reimbursed and how I'm how how my patient outcomes are, as you say, can be tied in in many cases back to how I effectively educated you as a patient. So now we're having to <laughs> make a change. Yeah. That maybe we haven't felt a whole lot of pain from up until now, but but that's in the mail. So there's there's good reasons why beyond the fact that it's just the right thing to do. Right, right. There's 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 legitimate financial pain behind this. And, yes. and I guess that's why they're doing it that way, because there are some practices around the way we've been doing things for all these decades that uh, moving from a volume based model, uh, an illness, treat illness based model to preventing illness. Yeah, yeah. That makes this conversation very important. Well, and I, you know, it, it may sound a bit corny, but I know for me, when I when I feel overwhelmed, which 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 can be most days, you know, it can be it can feel very overwhelming. There's so many issues, there's so many problems, there's so much complexity. We're just living inside of a big onion anyway, with lots and lots of layers, and lots of lots of, you know, things that could happen or or do happen. I, as a practitioner, I. I I still go back to thinking about patients and their families and sort of the obligations that we have as a caring profession to try to help people. And I think it is important to see this as something that's the right thing to do. That's a good motivation for those of us who are a part of health and healthcare. We should be there for our patients. This is fundamental to patients being able to take care of themselves. Um, Linking it and I think those of us who've been involved in the field over the last couple of decades are trying to be smart about linking it to quality and to metrics and to outcomes because we're not driving that. Everything else is driving it. And, and you know, to get in front of that 
But to be able to do that with something that's probably the right thing to be doing just feels right to me. And I, you know, I look at this and when I try to make it a part of what I do as a practitioner and what I teach as a practitioner, I think about it as fundamental to what it is patients have to live with and deal with every day and how we can be a small part that can become a big part of how they address and take care. We know, you know, we do so much. We've learned so much. There's so many innovations and and there's so much new science to guide what options are available for so many chronic health conditions. But if we don't make those available to people and something that they can access and use, then they're not able to take care of it. What are some, maybe one or two resources out there? You mentioned the tool, um, maybe one or two for, for a physician or other healthcare provider, as well as maybe if I'm a patient, you talked about the tool as, again, any other resources where it would be good to go for some information. Do you have any that you recommend for colleagues or patients? I, I think a great way to keep up with the field in general of health literacy is to look at, it used to be called the Institute of Medicine. It has a newer, more complex name now. <laughs> um, it, the National Academies of Medicine, to parallel the National Academy of Engineering, is the National Academy of Medicine, Health and Medicine has. What you would need to Google is really Roundtable on Health Literacy. Roundtable on Health Literacy, Health and Medicine. It's out of the National Academies of Science, which is an independent organization that's evidence-based in Washington. But there's a roundtable there that um, convenes stakeholders of all sorts, from members of industry to members of academia, um, patient advocacy groups, private practitioners that are rural to larger cities, different professions from nursing to, to um, physicians to, you know, all kinds of uh, folks related to health insurance and health plans, um, private and public, gather and meet several times a year. There are discussion papers, perspectives, workshop summaries that are on their website. They also have webinars of those workshops that happen several times a year. That's a great way to connect to people broadly around the country around many different topics and to see what's going on, where, from research to practice to innovations, technology-based. So that's a really good website to take a look at and to, to stay in touch with. The Agency for Healthcare Quality and Research certainly does have tools Many of the professional associations also have, web, have web-based tools that practitioners can turn to. Um, hey, I'm always happy to hear about anybody who wants to push health literacy up the, uh, the Sisyphean ball uphill, uphill as well. So <laughs> many people come my way. I'm always delighted when members of the media want to put this out. It's a tremendous tool. I would love to see more in the media of all types, um, making this more available to patients, to populations at large, to the public. So I'm really appreciative of you all for engaging folks on the audience today with it. Well, I'm really happy to be able to make our media outlet available for conversations just like this. Any other resources that you think of that we need to make sure that folks know about? I think those are the big ones to, you know, if you're someone who's trying to create material, the Center for Health Guidance also has tools on it. There's one that's very useful on how to create health literate printed material and gives tips for design. So that's centerforhealthguidance.org. And you can see their resources. 
The other thing that's on that website is a consumer guide that orients you to health insurance that really frames health insurance, which is Byzantine and a lot to work through, (laughs) um, to four questions. How do I get it? How do I use it? Also, how much is it going to cost me? What are my choices? And so I would encourage people who are trying to navigate that to, to step back and try to think of how do I take something is big and complicated and work my way through it. So there's a consumer guide there. There are tips on how to create health literate um, content as well. Those are, those are some other good sources. Well, I really appreciate you having been here. Uh, certainly appreciate our partnership that we have with the Medical Association of Georgia being able to share this great information to the benefit of both patients as well as physicians and other healthcare providers around the state of Georgia and beyond. Uh, if you've not done so already, look in the upper left-hand corner of the Top Docs radio show page. You'll see the Apple logo there. That'll take you to the iTunes store where the podcast lives, and you can subscribe to us. And that way, when the new episode comes out, it's downloaded straight to your device, ready for you to listen to whenever it's convenient for you. And we hope you turn around and share this information. Click share and put it out on LinkedIn, social media, sites like Facebook and Twitter. Um, those things, you put that out there, you might just be putting information in the hands of somebody that means something to you that makes a difference and you didn't even realize it. All you did was click share. So we'll say thanks in advance to all the folks that do that for us. Uh, everybody over at Medical Association of Georgia, Tom Cornegay, Susan Moore, Lori Murphy, and Donald Palmasano Jr. And Mandy, our new addition here in the studio with us running the camera today. Uh, we want to say we appreciate you very much and we look forward to catching up with you all same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. 